0: Don't touch that dial or mouse pad. Welcome to a new season of Shout for Libraries here on CJSR. We're a program looking to share the conversations and occasionally the controversies happening within library and information studies. So this week, in keeping with the CJSR fun drive that's happening, we will be talking a bit about alternative libraries and alternative collections. Because in a way you can think of a community volunteer driven radio station, as a form of alternative library model in that it's sharing knowledge and is run by uh, people that are just passionate about the model. My name is Dan. I'm an MLIS student at the University of Alberta and I currently work in a library makerspace.
1: Um, My name is Emily McGravy. I am also an MLIS student at the University of Alberta and I am currently the chair of the Edmonton Tool Library
2: and i'm timothy arthur i'm also an mlis student at the university of alberta and um yeah that's it
3: (laughs) okay hi i'm maya trotter and i'm also an mlis student at the university of alberta
0: all right so what we're talking about this week is alternative library collections and the sharing economy so to start us off i'd just like to get all your thoughts on what makes a library? Uh, is it books? And why should or shouldn't libraries stay in their lane, as it were? Why should we apply a library model to other things other than books, if at all?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think that's a really interesting question, because I think it depends on the library and what it's trying to do. Um, You know, an academic library might definitely be more geared toward resources and information, but the public library is a completely different space with a completely different set of needs um, requested by its users, its membership. So in that case, I think public libraries should not stay in their lane and academic libraries probably could a little bit um, as almost a specialized space, but
0: so you really you think with public libraries it's really about uh listening to the needs of the community and it's more about providing equitable access and the model more than books or knowledge specifically.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um so in that sense, I almost view academic libraries or any sort of specialized library as a specialized library um, with a smaller set of needs, whereas a public library is more like a general library, way wider audience. Uh, yeah, yeah, like I said, different sort of needs and things like that. It's it's doing a different thing entirely.
3: Yeah, I think one of the beautiful things about libraries is has been their ability to evolve and become spaces that are just beyond books. And I think that's why they've been able to stay relevant. Which is why we have alternative libraries now, because obviously there is a need for things like that. So, no, I don't. I don't think libraries should stay in their lane.
2: Yeah, I think libraries are in a very interesting sort of. Um location in our society where they're basically the only reliably the only indoor public space um and so a lot of a lot of i mean we can talk about like the sharing of space as space as a commons and sort of how that's been unloaded on libraries and and based on that, you know a lot of um Other social services have, over time, had to be picked up by libraries. I mean, we expect them to to sort of fill in for the degradation of the public sphere at large.
0: And I'm glad you brought that up, because I think it's impossible to think about why are libraries expanding their models without talking about that, to use an academic term, neoliberal privatization of the of everything, I guess, the the way we're kind of collapsing services into different discrete chunks uh, driven by profit models uh, more and more. And if we think back to, okay, if we're going back to kind of a, a streamlined definition of, or purpose for the Western library model, and we think back to books and providing equitable access to knowledge why is that a valuable thing at all? And I think from a at least a utilitarian point of view, it was so people can participate in culture, uh, so people can participate in society because without kind of that shared culture, uh, without access to that, you can't uh, participate in a meaningful way. And so we're at a point now where access to culture means so much more than just reading and writing literacy. It means being able to, I think with makerspaces in particular, uh, it also means a digital literacy and bridging a digital gap in services where in order to meaningfully participate in culture, you kind of have to at least, as much as some of us might not like it uh, in terms of social media or something, you participate in these online or uh, computer-mediated forms of culture as well, in addition to just whatever you're enabled by, reading and writing.
1: So when you say access to culture, are you thinking access to artifacts, mediums, all that kind of stuff? Or are you talking um, the ability to develop skills, to participate in the creation of culture and things like that?
0: Well I guess that's the the interesting question is we've got um, I, I would say the the latter um, because I think the former comes from a very uh, Western academic uh, ivory tower bibliocentric uh, view of what culture is. like it only matters if you're a dead white man who wrote on this specific category or uh, con- contributed to these very Uh, Delineated forms of knowledge and culture, whereas now I think that's exploded a little bit and we've recognized the importance of a significant number of other ways to contribute to uh, our community and enrich our community's lives, whether that means, uh, I guess with the tool library, being able to enrich uh, I should stop using enrich. Um, <laughs> whether that means being like having having access to these these basic ways to construct uh, your built environment uh, because the built environment is what does that accept a crystallization of 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 your culture? And there's pretty big implications there um, alone, but we can maybe get into that a little bit later in the conversation.
2: I'm sort of tempted to take a more cynical track and say historically the purpose of libraries has been less so to help people engage with culture than to make them like baseline employable. And, and as you know, the basic skills required for <clears throat> employability in our, you know, um post-industrial society have become more digital. I mean, so have the things we rely on libraries for. Um, you know change towards digital things I guess.
0: Well certainly there's a mythology there in terms of in a lot of defenses of libraries I've read exactly what you were talking about where someone justifies like oh I was able to build whatever company because as a kid I was able to go into a library and work really hard and bootstrap myself through the books that were available through the library. And now I'm a successful businessman and it plays into that uh, American capitalist dream in a lot of ways.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I I would be more inclined to use it as like a condemnation of libraries <laughs> in that, you know, they're only developing this very like functional skill set that's required for, I don't know, or primarily this, this skill set that's required for work to be employed
4: yeah well
1: i I feel like in our program we talk a lot about how important it is for libraries to keep up with trends um, of all kinds and i think that speaks further to your point uh tim about who is setting the trends where are these trends coming from um is it the workforce is it you know capitalist driven initiatives things like that um or is it the community asking for it are we just trying to make sure the community is keeping up with these trends and if we are we are we as libraries we as libraries um you know feeding into that
0: it's a great question that quantification component i think really plays into things uh in terms of how do li- libraries justify their services these days in an austerity kind of environment uh it's oftentimes you've uh the toronto public library a couple of years back commissioned a research institute to look into the basic dollar value return for every dollar of investment in the library, and it came back with something like five dollars and something cents per dollar spent. And then there's other libraries in the states. I think in Kansas, Wichita, they they print out like the amount of money you've saved uh, by borrowing a book versus uh, buying it every time you get like a printout uh, of what you've just checked out and it's an interesting way of justifying library services but it does play into what you were just talking about where it's like are we justifying the existence of libraries based purely on this investment economic economic centric model
1: well and further to that is it possible to create a library space that isn't doing that you know because we, we are kind of halfway in we're trying to create these spaces that are separate from capitalism and things like that but we are still existing in this world we're still within this system Um, and you know we can't completely separate without severing some pretty fundamental uh, components of our system being funding and connection to our our users
0: absolutely Uh, and I guess in some ways I worry that by justifying ourselves entirely through these models you open yourself to more of these critiques there was that article in Forbes a couple of years back Uh, There's one in Globe and Mail just recently during the pandemic about our libraries, then, if you justify them in this way, are they actually becoming market competitors to publishers, to bookstores, to authors themselves? And I think it's that kind of, especially with respect to creative workers and authors, a kind of a lateral violence thing. Maybe that's an extreme term, but like a lateral conflict thing where it's positing like two spheres that in many ways share very similar goals against each other uh, for the benefit of corporate publishers who are monetizing both.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, a lot of the conversations that have evolved around digital copyright and access to things like that also speak further to this um, and really highlight in a way I think that physical texts haven't. Um, where you know we have the ability to give everyone access to everything if they have you know the, the technological requirements, but are we willing to go to that point? And who sacrifices? Who loses? And and as you said, those two adjacent spheres. You know we have to support our cultural industry. We have to figure out a way of working with them, um, not undermining their their needs in this system. But with all that said. I do think this undermines how libraries should be consistently trying to step out of their lane. Maybe not intentionally always standing completely outside of what they traditionally work. because I think that might sever any relationship they have to their members, but I think it should definitely be a concerted effort um, to be checking in and seeing where they can be meeting their users. And it'd be interesting to do so in a way that is mindful of, you know, as uh, we've talked about already, these trends that are pushing it. Are, are we providing this to our, members because we're enabling um, some of these profit driven initiatives, or are we doing so because it's a genuine need?
0: And is there a more complex answer with adopting some of these things? Like, I always think about public computers in the library. And uh, obviously, I think I would argue for that being ultimately a good in providing equity of access to those that don't have access to uh networks or computing devices in other ways. Um, But in terms of enacting an ethical inclusion of that within the library model, do we need to take greater steps to protect the library user base from invasions of digital privacy from social media companies from these data aggregation companies? Do we need to take do we need to apply more thought basically to applying these new directions within a library model
1: that, that's an interesting thought and i think at the heart of that is um non-partisan versus boldly stating the library's values um, and where it stands um you know do we completely remove our presence on social media websites that we know infringe on user privacy and then sacrifice our connection with those users and their ability to engage on those platforms when they come to the library. Um, so I think that's a really interesting one. It comes back to that. Are we customer service driven or are we value driven? And what are the implications of, of that?
0: Totally, and which values do we encourage versus others? Like you'll always see, I feel like there's two kind of scandals that come up in library, uh, on library, Twitter, librarian Twitter every so often and the one the genre of scandal is, uh, are libraries even relevant anymore? Maybe Amazon should just replace all the libraries, the one we've already gotten into. But the other is uh, a library platforming a form of speech that many communities consider hateful. And we'll always go to bat for that one. We'll always go to bat for freedom of expression kind of thing. But in terms of protecting our communities from invasions of privacy, Uh, we don't take as many public stances. There are some examples, Uh, I know TPL uh, instituted a pilot where all of their libraries were using Tor browsers on their public computers, Uh, but it doesn't get, and maybe this is a media problem, but it doesn't get as much public uh, discourse as the the other form of uh, ethical information provision.
5: From Edmonton, this is Democracy Now. Campus community radio is the the most important resource we have these days. Have you seen the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma? As CJSR's fund drive continues, we go to the basement of the University of Alberta to speak with Morgo Midler about the importance of independent news and music. Can donors help CJSR beat their fundraising goal this year? Then we look at the technological innovations of the interwebs and fundraising.
2: The CJSR online donation platform is one of high-tech, innovative technology. It has never been so easy to donate at CGSR.com. It's faster, it's better, and it's just more productive. You just have to click on donate now.
5: We'll speak to technology expert Evan Orzo-Pena. And then... You know, people think phones are over, but phones aren't over. You pick up the phone, you dial 780-492-2577 extension 0, and... A wonderful volunteer is there on the other side to take your money. This is called human contact. Have you seen the social dilemma? Kate Collins tells us why she thinks tele donations count as socializing. All that and more. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Fun Drive Report. I'm Amy Goodwoman.
1: This might be a step in a different direction to the first topic, but um, another thing that I know has come up in my brain about why libraries should be actively striving to step outside of their lane is, um, you know, we always talk about providing different kinds of resources, different types of resources, different formats, but I think there's something really valuable to providing an item. You know, you can't learn to fish by reading about fishing um, fully. You can't learn to cook without access to cooking utensils. things like that. You can, the tool library, you can't learn to build your space or feel empowered to even try um, without access to the things that will allow you to do that. Um, so I think that there's another reason that libraries should absolutely be working to step outside their lane and providing that next level of higher learning and empowerment.
0: It's a much better and more concise uh, a statement about uh, non-bibliocentric learning than <laughs> uh, we were talking about earlier. Um, so let's, let's get into that then. Uh, I know that one of our members, uh, Paula Kerman, <coughs> interviewed you about your work in the Edmonton Tool Library. Let's go to that interview and then we'll talk about some alternative library collections that enable forms of learning and knowledge that you can't find in books.
2: Hey, it's Timothy, with a quick note about the interview you're about to hear. After recording it, Emily decided to join the Shout crew, so in the discussion you've been hearing, she's been speaking as a Shout member, and in this interview, she'll be speaking as chair of the Edmonton Tool Library. Enjoy.
6: So how long have you been involved with the Edmonton Tool Library?
1: About two years now. Yeah, I first found them uh, just looking for tools. I think that's how most people find them. And then it's just kind of snowballed in involvement.
6: What is the Edmonton Tool Library? How did it get started? And and what's it all about?
1: Yeah, so it was started by a group of five people, uh, Edmontonians, who are really passionate about sustainability and tool access. Uh, and they laid down the infrastructure for the organization in 2016. Doors opened in 2017, and we've been chugging along ever since, um, operating out of the back of the Bellevue Community League uh, Center.
6: And what kind of people uh, access tools at the Tool Library?
1: Uh, All kinds. Uh, At this point, there's no real stereotypical member. Um, Just people who want to do their own work on their own spaces. their own yards, their own homes and in apartments and condos, all kinds of environments, wherever people are finding themselves. Um, yeah.
6: What kind of tools are available?
1: Power tools, uh, We have power tools, hand tools, uh, garden and yard tools, uh, all kinds of things, sewing machines, whatever you need to work with almost any medium. Um, We have something for it so and if we don't we always encourage members or the public to ask um, our inventory is available online and then we that's feedback that we take and say okay it's a library right we're looking for what our members and what the community needs so uh, we try to be quite receptive and agile to the needs there
6: so if i'd like to borrow a tool from the tool library how would i go about doing that
1: yeah so the first thing you would do is ask yourself am i a member of my community league Uh, because there are 157 community leagues in the city of edmonton 31 of them have memberships with us so they just pay a flat fee and then whoever belongs to their community league automatically has a membership with us Um, so that's the first option second option you can approach us for an individual annual membership for fifty dollars but i always kind of add this disclaimer um, accessibility is one of our missions and our, our values so if Financially, that's problematic for anybody. We always encourage them to just email us, uh, get get in contact with us, and we'll figure something out. Um, we don't want money to be a reason someone can't access the tools. Um, but traditionally, yes, it's the fifty dollars for the individual membership if you can afford it, and two hundred fifty dollars for the community leagues or an organization, um, so a business or anything like that that wants to um, help out their employees and give them that kind of access to the community resources. Are you
6: always looking for volunteers as well?
1: yes always i think almost any volunteer organization is um we're completely run by volunteers so we're an operating board and that's actually currently our volunteer base right now uh so we look for tool librarians which is just uh someone who welcomes people in helps them find tools you don't need to know a lot about tools to do it it's actually really fun um our membership's really kind there's just such a community environment so i I would say tool, tool knowledge is definitely not a a must have to volunteer with us Uh, so there's yeah tool librarians if you do know a lot about tools we're always looking for tool doctors um, people to help us maintain the tools and give us advice on what we should and shouldn't be getting and investing in from an environmental standpoint and from an economic standpoint Uh, and then marketing outreach that's always a big one as well but yeah there's definitely a position for any capability and interest with us
6: and if somebody happens to have some tools laying around the house or garage that they don't need anymore uh do you accept donations
1: we do we are quite a small space for anybody who does come and check us out you'll see um and we get such wonderful support from the community in the form of donations but we do have to kind of vet that Um, the idea is to divert as much as we can from the landfill and and help uh, take advantage of the waste management systems that the city of Edmonton has put into place. Um, but yeah, that's just a conversation we have with donations. What, what are you looking to donate? And if it's a home with us, or if we can help transfer it on to someone else who might uh, make more use of it.
6: How has uh, the pandemic affected the Tool Library's operations a- at all?
1: Uh, yes, it, it definitely has. Um, since doors opened in 2017, there was a, definitely a steady increase in membership and visibility uh with the pandemic uh we went to a standstill initially i think we kind of were hopeful that it would pass and then it didn't and so we kind of came together um and have now moved to a a curbside model which is always an option for us so instead of our typical uh two days of the week open it's one day of the week it's you you should make a reservation you should look at our online inventory let us know and come in so Uh, make a reservation, we'll set it aside and you don't enter the space, which is unfortunate because that's half the fun is the where's Waldo finding your tool in the space. Um, So I would say we've definitely been impacted um, just with how we can connect with our membership, even finding the time within our volunteer base to to commit that energy. It's just such a tremendous time. and I think that's that's definitely been a challenge, but I'm really proud of what our board and our volunteers have been able to do we put on a repair cafe outdoor event. Uh, at the end of August, and it was fantastic, we had so many really skilled Edmontonians come out and uh, connect with community members and pass on some some skills and just really further our mission in a covid friendly way so it, there has been good things that have come out of this, uh, but yeah I think, like most organizations. It, it it had it still is taking its toll on us so we just got to (laughs) keep moving forward as best we can
6: do you have any special events uh planned for the next while
1: nothing right now Uh, we're in a big inventory management phase um this is we're treating this as an opportunity to just kind of come back down to earth see you know if we can put together some basic household kits that we can give away because we just have a lot of stuff in the space um so no no big events coming up yet we are uh quite on the fly group i know that the repair cafe was put together within a few months so definitely just stay tuned we have a newsletter we have a website uh we have instagram uh so yeah if we do have events that that's where they'll be coming out so
6: and how many people are currently involved with the tool library as volunteers and otherwise
1: As, as volunteers so there are 10 of us right now um we with the repair cafe that was an additional almost between 10 and 15 volunteers specialized volunteers who just came in for that event but now we have this little list that we're building um mm-hmm. but it's an operating board the 10 people and we're the ones who fill the shifts as of right now um, we actually don't have any casual volunteers and I, that is almost 100 percent because of covid it's just very difficult to be having new people come into a space and then yeah you're, trying to build that, that rapport when you, you can't <laughs> with all the distance but hmm. so 10 people right now yeah
6: so how can pe- how can people uh find the tool library online and connect yeah. with you online
1: yeah so you can search us just a google search of edmontontoolibrary.ca that takes you to our website uh, that has all kinds of information on it uh, including our email address Library at gmail.com and that's uh, yeah, so how you can get a hold of us, obviously. We have an Instagram, at Yeg Tool Library. uh that's another option as well, and a Facebook account, Edmonton Tool Library, and we're quite responsive on all of those platforms. Um, it's one of three of us replying, so you're always going to get a, a familiar face talking to you. Uh, and yeah, definitely reach out to us with any questions or any interest. Um,
0: Okay, and we're back. Other than that library that you were so gracious to explain, what kind of other library collections or models have you come across uh, where the library model has been applied?
3: Yeah, um, a library model that I came across um, are art libraries, which um, art libraries are usually housed in museums or there's a section of a the library themselves. So they're not usually their own entity, but um, they're supposed to be a way to break this barrier of engagement with art. Because if you see, if you go to a museum and you, you're you um, consuming art there, it's it's this untouchable entity that hangs on a wall and you have to, you know, you, you look at it, you view it, you examine it, but there's no engagement really. So art libraries, um, art libraries are trying to break those barriers. So a few of the art libraries that I've come across, um, they ha- a popular way to enact them is to um, have sketchbooks or artist books that people can take out and engage with. Um, a popular one that is happening right now is the, um, the Brooklyn Art Library where, uh, artists can send in their sketchbooks and they have I think over 30,000 sketchbooks that you can take out and and take home and examine art that way. Um, There's also one here in Alberta at the Banff Center where they have uh, artist books as well that you can take home and you can touch them and you can interact with them in a way that you can't with art in a museum or um, in galleries. In that kind of way,
2: I love the idea of having like a spot on my wall with a ro- like a rotating piece of art. I don't know to see something different every month or something.
1: <laughs> I love the idea of this process being accessible. Um, I know in your notes, Maya, you mentioned that uh, the cost is typically put towards the artist, which I also think is a really interesting. It, it's a it's a relatively low cost. I know that's a matter of perspective, but. Uh, I think that's a great way of creating that initiative and supporting it uh, and really, yeah, putting the user at the front line of that uh, and promoting access to that kind of process. I think that's awesome.
0: There's all pretty interesting articulations of this fundamental tension that I always think of in libraries, which is static knowledge versus uh, knowledge as a process, where is the important part the preservation and keeping that final item, the art piece within the lineage of culture, or is the important part interacting with it? Is it seeing the process by which a creator or artist came up with something through a myriad of different influences? And yeah, that's something I I, I just commonly think about in this tension between is preserving something in one form, important part, or is like, are they in, in these sketchbooks? Are people allowed to draw on them and stuff like that?
3: Um, as far as I know, no. You can't, you can't alter the sketchbook in any way, but um, a lot of the sketchbook have pieces to them that you can interact with, like things that you can pull out or, or flip. Um, so you can interact with them in that way. So you can kind of get a better idea of the process and how it was created, but you can't actually add anything of your own to it um, in an effort to preserve the artist's actual work. So it's a little bit of a mix of both. It's, you know, art, art creates new art, but still an effort to preserve what the artist has created while also demonstrating the process.
0: Right. So art libraries is a great example. And we've got tool libraries. I've been interested uh, from a lens of sustainability and ecological economics, the idea of, uh, removing inefficiencies or redundant items from culture. And I know that the fast fashion industry in particular is a pretty significant source of global emissions. Um, so I've been interested in clothing libraries that basically hold a, a collection of clothing items. And particularly for those things that you really only need to use once, uh, formal wear, stuff like that, uh purpose dedicated clothing that they keep a collection of that and then you can check them out and then return them uh in a way so that we don't need to produce as many clothes so i've always found that pretty interesting
2: do you know if there are any clothing libraries around here I not don't as know. far
0: as i know
1: yeah. yeah i don't know about clothing libraries but i know i've just recently stumbled upon an organization called blenders garments and I guess where I view clothing libraries is like this wonderful initiative that's clean, pristine. It, it only has, you know, the utilitarian goods. Um, what I really like about Blender's Garments, it's nonprofit uh, and they have this system uh, where you clothes in if you're donating you're you're paying an ecological fee for them to dispose of the things that they can't use but they have this process so every weekend um they open up tables and you pay by pound and you can just go through all these clothes that the community has given uh they also sell like boxes with different sizes and then they also do these workshops to use the clothes that they can't sell um and i just i love that and i know it's not directly a, a library example but i i've just thought it's such a interesting way of approaching fast fashion and this just surplus of textiles um and making it so that we are acknowledging the surplus that we have and trying to divert it in sustainable ways using a common it's it's volunteer based for the most part and they have a lot of really cool initiatives. Um, but that's the closest I found in Edmonton. Um so and there are costs associated with that one which is another interesting thing. So I have lots of examples of sharing economies but I have very few true examples of of no costs for the users Um, because that's just not the world we live in right now
0: especially when and it's interesting the way these things get codified Uh, I was thinking about it particularly in the case of we just came out of Halloween this past weekend and I was talking to someone who emigrated here and they were kind of flabbergasted that Their kids could just walk around and get candy from everyone and for free without doing anything uh, besides walking, I guess. And it's interesting, these things like a library and the free sharing of books or trick or treating, even that become codified and accepted within a culture. And not to say that there isn't a significant amount of overconsumption involved in trick or treating or even library purchasing models, but if you propose them to a contemporary city council or community league or uh, provincial government, you would probably get shouted down as being like a communist of some kind where it's interesting the line, what, at what point does a does library model get sufficient buy-in basically. so how much use would the Edmonton tool library have to get or a clothing library have to get before you start seeing that public enough public support for public funding and things like that. And you don't have to rely on user fees. Uh, even the Edmonton public library only got rid of user fees within this uh, within the 21st century. So it's interesting to think about that. And I always wonder how you kind of reverse the privatization Impulse uh, when so much is geared towards those kinds of things and owning your own tool sets and things like that during this summer. One of the most interesting conversations that I followed was this idea that we're privatization climate con- or we're privatizing climate control in terms of the immediate go-to for everyone was. Okay, during this heat wave, we're all going to go out and buy air conditioners and then you get supply chain shortages and things like that, as opposed to why aren't we constructing neighborhoods with uh, greater tree cover and more highly reflective roofs in order to lower the ambient temperature of our community for everyone. And I just wonder how you get things moving in the opposite direction, I guess how do you how do you build that political will
1: yeah i think that involves generating a lot of community support um you know it's, it's a cultural shift um i think that those who have the ability to make decisions that are for the greater good um you know i think you can see it in some of the communities in edmonton there tends to be a higher amount of privilege you're in the space where you can put the greater good first and you can start thinking about what the community needs um and i think that's an interesting conversation and a very complex uh, cultural shift to initiate.
2: Hmm. Sort of brings us back to the uh, little free libraries, which I talked about last week, the fact that they're mostly found in wealthier neighborhoods, mostly found in white neighborhoods, um, mostly found um, within walking distance of an actual library. And
0: it's interesting. That, that line of formal versus informal practices. Like another model that we could bring up is uh, community pantries, community fridges, uh, <coughs> and that kind of essentially a food library. Uh, you can also look at community gardens too, um, but none of those have, or very few of them have any level of backing above a, maybe, maybe a
1: community league. I think that is a really interesting point um, to make that it, it is these similar to how we talk about the artists taking on the expense for these sketchbooks where we're just offsetting this expense to organizations that, um, you know, we, we have deemed able to support it and then they deem themselves able to support it. Um, but I, yeah, I think mean, it does bring questions: sustainability, the financial sustainability, um, which I think is always my biggest question. I, to me, it's a no-brainer why the sharing economy should exist. Uh, the the real complexity is how, on um, mm-hmm. how to get to that point. Um, and I, I, it's great to look at all these other examples. I know we talked about the sketchbooks, um, and uh, like to, you mentioned, the free libraries. I know I've encountered talks of the Human Library organization. It's a it's more like a global initiative. It, it doesn't exist in one place. Sounds like they help other libraries and organizations set up um, spaces to create it, where you can essentially uh, talk about things with someone. Their, their motto, unjudge someone. Um, it's a fantastic opportunity to get to some pretty intense topics in a really safe and inviting space. Um, but again, these are all nonprofits that are completely dependent on community and government funding um they're not self-sustaining models uh, and that government some might argue is supported by capitalist initiatives so it's, it's, it's this big giant wheel <laughs> it's turning mm-hmm.
0: totally there's an academic David Graeber who uses the term seeing like a state and in the same way that say what we term the economy has certain internalized costs and externalized costs most notably we can think of carbon emissions as having at least in canada previously been an externalized cost that essentially the economy did not see or in this case with the state it does not see the domain of these alternative library models as being its responsibility or anything and how would you how do you make the state or the community see that
1: Burnout is an extremely common um, term and a, an event, especially in. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm I obviously focus on tool libraries, but it's incredibly common because they're not supported in the way that public libraries are. Or that traditional libraries are it's it's really you got to have that it's like everyone just decided that yes we're going to commit to this one thing there's so many wonderful initiatives initiatives to support but this group of people has come together because we believe in providing access to tools this is our thing and that's such a niche thing to be supporting wholeheartedly um so i i I think yes we we definitely have those aspirations as any other non-traditional library undoubtedly does but the viability of it with the just human capacity is is a whole other topic.
0: You heard it here, folks. Uh, community-driven initiatives like CGSR need your support. So you might be aware right now. This week we are hosting the CGSR fundraiser. Get in touch in order to support CGSR.
4: Good idea. Polishing your cowboy boots. Bad idea. Polishing your cow. Good idea Rafting down the river Bad idea Rafting down Wayne Gretzky Drive
6: Get off the road, buddy!
4: Good idea Rolling up your loose change so you can make a donation to CJSR for this year's fun drive Bad idea leaving your change in your pocket, walking through a landfill, getting picked up by a magno grab thrown into a trash compactor.
0: The Cochrane Public Library has instituted another library model that we'd like to talk about today. And we'll just go to that segment right now. Jesse, thanks so much for talking with us. First off, can you tell us a little about yourself and your role at the Cochrane Public Library?
7: I am the Community Outreach and Program Librarian and I am in charge of Adult Programming and the Adult Collections. I am, this is my second year as a professional librarian. I'm a graduate of the Western uh, Accelerated Program, but I also did my library tech at SAIT Um, a while ago. So I've been a library lover for a long, long time. And I love my job and I love my community.
0: Awesome. So today we're talking about your seed library initiative down there at Cochrane Public Library. So can you give us a quick rundown on what that seed library looks like? How long it's been operating? And what does the service model kind of look like from an average patron's perspective?
7: So our seed library is actually an antique mail sorter, which is really wonderful because it has lots of slots uh, to put all the different seeds in and organize them. So we just have a bolted to the wall in one of our in our front rotary lounge and people are welcome to ask questions about it and see it on the wall. We have it labeled as the seed library and people bring seeds in in the spring or in the fall whenever they can and they take seeds out and then um, sometimes they can bring them back, sometimes know how to harvest them. And sometimes um, it's just one of the wonderful groups in the community that find out that we have a seed library and donate some.
0: That's so cool. I love the framing of checking out the seeds in the spring Mm -hmm. and then checking them back in in the fall. Mm -hmm. It's such a simple kind of metaphor uh, using the commonly understood concepts from the traditional library model. Outside of the check-in and out procedures, do you find that patrons ever let you know how their items are doing during the lending period?
7: It's still a bit new for us. We've had it for about 18 months, so about three season shifts. Uh, and people are still hearing about it a lot so I haven't been updated too much but um, I know I've been working with the Cochrane Horticulture Society and I just got onto the Cochrane Gardeners Facebook group and they're all super excited to hear that we have one so I anticipate as the program builds and builds that there'll be more people who are saying you know I got these flowers here and they just turned out lovely or we're growing vegetables on our um, apartment patio and it's just wonderful so I haven't yet but I anticipate that
0: in the future awesome so you said 18 months and that makes me want to let's just dig into the origins a bit was this l- project directly requested by your community or was it more of a situation where you and the other library staff saw an implied need there and hoped to fill it or what was the impetus behind starting the seed library
7: It was actually one of the things that I really wanted to get started when I started on here. I saw a presentation at OLA, it was the January 2020 OLA, about taking out a group of kids into the garden and what that looked like and how that could be incorporated with library programming, storytelling out there, seeing the beginning, middle and end of something similar to the story format and how you you can get a garden and all that kind of stuff. And I knew we had a garden here. And so I wanted to get that started because I knew it was kind of picking up. Uh, but it's still a little quiet seed libraries around here. So it was something that I personally brought in and I'm really proud that I, that I brought that program in.
0: That's so cool. I mm-hmm. was gonna ask actually, I know St. Albert and Pinocchio have also started their own seed libraries as well. So mm-hmm. I was curious whether there's any kind of coordination or whether uh, you had just taken that on yourself and it just so happened that they also developed something independently, but in parallel. I wonder if you were all at the same conference or anything.
7: Probably, OLA is pretty big, um, is the big Canada conference to go to. Uh, I looked at a variety of places. I I didn't want to step on anyone's toes if there's already a seed library in Cochrane, just because it's not a huge community. So I'd rather uh, partner up services than compete. So I focused on um, finding books about seed libraries. I have an ongoing webpage uh, with all the books in the catalog for seed libraries and seed collection and harvesting, so that if people have questions and don't know how to do it, there's a resource right there. Um, I lost my train of thought.
0: No worries. We'll be sure to put that website in the show notes for, Mm -hmm. definitely. Uh, So, let's go back to those beginnings and let's say if a library uh, were interested in developing their own seed library what was your basic process that you went through Uh, how did you develop your initial collection of seeds Uh, you mentioned the uh, sorting machine but do you need any kind of special storage facilities what kind of costs were associated and uh, did you come up with the borrowing model before starting it, or did you kind of have to tweak it as you went along to see has it how it worked?
7: So to get started, um, I got, I had the idea and then I had to find the equipment. Um, we have kind of um, an old train station sort of theme going on here. So I wanted to find a piece of furniture that fit with that. And I happened to find a hundred year old male sorter. So that worked really well. Uh, so I set that up, I set up the seed library and um, I tried to make partnerships in the communities, especially with the Hort Society and the gardening clubs. Cause that way you have local gardeners who already are doing seed exchanges. You'll find a lot of them are doing seed exchanges in those clubs, as well as access to local seeds. So you want to build those partnerships, make sure you have a good standing with them. And I found that the the horticulture society is the one who is donating the most amount of seeds to us. And they even have their own special seed packets stamped and labeled with everything. And they know how to grow everything. And they're always happy for me to steer people towards them for information about that.
0: So speaking of those seed varieties, I know that your collection deals in heirloom varieties only. Can you speak a bit about why that's necessary in particular?
7: So there's two reasons why that's necessary. First, when you get heirloom varieties, that means that they don't have to be Um, pollinated by hand. Sometimes when you get vegetables that have been grown out of grocery stores or some of the larger uh, greenhouses, they actually have to be pollinated by hand, which is fine if you know that, but if you're just grabbing seeds out of a seed library and you expect to put them in the dirt and a plant will grow and everything will be fine, it's not going to work out. So I don't want to discourage people by providing them with seeds that require extra care that they don't know that they need to do. And the second reason is, is having local seeds helps us build local ecology. So if we have flowers and plants and veggies and and whatnot that are all local to here, it strengthens our um, ecology system. And that's really important too, especially if you're applying for green space grants and whatnot.
0: I love that perspective. If you could go back in time and get out of your time machine and grab your younger self by the shoulders, what do you think would be the most useful thing to know about running the seed library now that you've had 18 months of experience to draw upon?
7: I think that the most important thing is building those community partnerships. It's really hard to do it alone and it's really hard to do it if you don't already have a gardening group around your library because they're not going to know so you know there's some overlap between the gardening people and the book people but that's not always there so um, think of the seed library as a springboard for creating those really integral community partnerships um, that was what that is something i'm still building and i'm still working on and it's helping the seed library is helping build that but it would be great if we had it right from the get-go
0: I love this idea that you're nurturing community relationships and nurturing your relationships with the local ecology at the same time. It's a really cool initiative. So I know that many people, including me discovered or rediscovered gardening during this pandemic in particular. Uh, even though you're only 18 months old, Have you seen any trends about usership during this time? Or how has usership been in these 18 months?
7: Uh, we're actually getting a lot more donations and people are picking up, uh, people, the, the really into it gardeners hear about us through the Hort society or through the Facebook garden groups that we join and they get really excited. And they're like, I have a million seeds and I can't give them to anybody and we'll happy to take them. So right now we're kind of still in the back end of the really excited people who want to build the partnerships. And it's just, you know, slowly getting there with the people like the backyard gardeners or the apartment gardeners who just want a few plants. To grow and to look pretty so we're still trying to get out there and um there's probably someone at least once a week you have a seed library that's so exciting yeah so they're still very surprised we have a lot of library things so we surprise people all the time um but just keep talking about it is the most important thing
0: uh speaking of that kind of surprise i was delighted to see other non-traditional collection models at your library Mm -hmm. Uh, Particularly a personal dream of mine, uh, camping equipment collection within the library, Mm -hmm. how does the seed library tie into this broader picture, complementing your library of things and items like the citizen ghostbusting kit that aren't traditionally a part of library collections.
7: One of the uh, defining values that me and my other librarian practice is equitable access and that's what we bring as a public library is equitable access and that used to just be information and that used to just be housed in books and now we know it's in e-resources and internet access but equitable access is also understanding the ecology that you live in so having seeds being able to experience camping we have snowshoes that we cannot keep on the shelf during the winter time people are so excited we partnered with the life saving society of canada to have life jackets we have a the bow river right here and people love going out there on the weekend, life jackets are expensive. So if you can borrow one of those just for a few days, that makes a huge impact on families that are feeling pinched right now.
0: Speaking of those kinds of alternative collections, I guess, and speaking of the Seed Library, do you at Cochrane Public Library have you started your own garden yet? I guess is what I'm asking. And would there be any turns to, plans to turn that into, say a food library where someone could walk into the rows and pick some food for their dinner and then bring it home?
7: So we have one. <laughs> Uh, We grow veggies near our parking lot. And we have raspberry canes out front. We have rhubarb plants. Um, We have our fruit trees where the first year got fruit this year, they're five years old. So that was really exciting. Um, And I'm working on a pollinator garden for the front. So we do have a garden, we have a wonderful green space and we love to do programming out there whenever we can. And I find it such an amazing part of the library.
0: That's awesome, I love the pollinator garden. Uh, I wonder if you're gonna capture any usage statistics about your user base amongst bees and butterflies and birds and things.
7: We'll see, that'll have to be creative data capture.
0: Fair enough, Uh, so we'll end on this last question. Jumping off of that then is what kind of plans do you have for the future of the seed library, uh, if any?
7: just really want to grow it really want to make sure that everyone in Cochrane and Rocky View County has access and knows that it's there. Um, it, like I said, people are still really surprised. So I just keep talking about it, keep sharing and it, it's always a draw for someone new each year, we always get at least one new member for each library thing that we have each year.
0: Well, that's wonderful to hear. Do you see these becoming a standard part of Albertan libraries? Do you think?
7: I really hope so. I think it'll be a bit slower, especially where we are, because gardening is pretty hard in Cochrane, given the Chinook climate that we have. Uh, But again, it's just part of equitable access. And I think that seed libraries are part of equitable access to good food, as well as participating in the community.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. And I hope to learn so much more about your seed libraries and see them grow in different libraries in Alberta, but uh, hopefully we'll hear a lot more about uh, Cochrane Public Library and the exciting initiatives that y'all are taking part in.
7: Thank you.
4: idea. Making breakfast in bed for your mom.
5: Oh, that's so sweet.
4: Bad idea. Making breakfast in your mom's bed.
5: There's salsa everywhere.
4: Good idea. Taking a walk in the park. Bad idea. Parking in a crosswalk. Hey, I'm walking here. I'm walking here. Good idea. Rolling up your loose change so you can make a donation to CJSR for this year's fun drive. Bad idea. Hoarding your change so your pants fall down during an important keynote address.
0: (laughs) Well, that's been another month and episode of Shout for Libraries. Thank you all for listening. You can find all our past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. We've been Shout for Libraries. Until next month,
2: check, check it, it out. out. <laughs> Shout for Libraries is produced by Dan Hackborn, Abby Mutakumar, Paula Kerman, Emny Magrabi, Maya Trotter, Alessa Kormanitska, Danny Wang, and me, Timothy Arthur. The music in this episode is Beanbag Fight by ScanGlobe and Algorithms by Chad Crouch. Thanks for listening and for supporting Shout for Libraries on CJSR.